joined in this episode welcome to new world broadcast by the way <laughs> we are joined uh by dr stephen arthur allen again for a second episode and sam lake fellow graduate of rutgers university uh and phenomenal tuba player um so welcome thank you so we are we had this idea sam and i were talking after athena um, after a few drinks uh, <laughs> about how like it would be really cool to have someone on the podcast who is really quite accomplished as a musician but hasn't really experienced brass band stuff all that much and to have them ask some questions of someone who knows a, a lot about brass band stuff. <laughs> and that is where the idea for this episode came about. So we have someone who is very accomplished on her instrument um, and hasn't had a ton of experience in brass band stuff, Sam Lake. And we have someone who is very experienced in brass band stuff and that's Dr. Allen over here. So um, yeah. Do you want I guess to just start with like a disclosure that it, um, although I don't have like the most brass band experience, we did meet playing in Athena. Yeah, exactly. I was, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, so so honored to get that that invite and to meet so many people and to see you again there. Um, and I hadn't played in brass band before that since I was at my undergrad at UConn. There was a local mm -hmm. brass band there that um, that students subbed in as needed. So I had a, a long hiatus. It felt like the beginning of my studies to the very end. Um, but again, mm. just as a classical tuba player, as needed, faking my way through it, <laughs> transposing <laughs> all the parts, complaining all the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's just what tuba players do, complain about double clef. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, last minute, uh, retyping everything like a crazy person. Um, so I know there's probably, no, uh, no stupid questions, but I probably have some silly ones. So you'll have to let me know if the premise oh, of I anything. Love, I... I love silly ones. I was hoping it would be mostly silly ones, actually. <laughs> and I'm if they're not, I'm very silly myself. So you know. <laughs> yeah, if they're not silly questions, there are certainly going to be some silly answers. Oh, uh, <laughs> Tony knows me too well. So I was thinking. I learned from the introduction in, in Athena that brass bands came about in the industrial age. But then also yesterday, I was reminded that we uh, declared independence from England far before then. Why is this British uh, like heritage, this British, um, what do you call it? Yeah, like this, uh, it's a tradition. very British tradition. There it is, a very British tradition. tradition. Why? Why do we have it now in America? We're independent though. <laughs> well, because in England, you know, we call Independence Day good riddance day. You knew that. <laughs> well, there's um, there's a very long answer to that, but let me see if I give you the real short one. Um, Adolf Sachs designed a complete series of conical ball horns. And in 1851, they were exhibited at the British exhibition and cut a long story short, brass bands switched over to the sax horns. Um, and in America, it, there's a, an amazing coincidence between the laying of railway lines and the invention of the valve, because it meant that in effect, in the same way that the guitar became an enormously popular instrument in the 1960s, brass instruments were that in the 19th century. In other words, the invention of the valve meant that everybody could play a, a brass instrument. And as most of us know, you can learn quite quickly, get to quite a high standard quite quickly relatively on a brass instrument, and then it's very slow compared to a lot of instruments that are very slow throughout. And with Americans being very practically minded, it probably really appealed to them. And one stat I can give you is that um, there, there, were, there were one in 40 Americans playing a brass instrument in 1900, which is an astounding statistic, right? 
So one of the things I learned, Sam, when I first came here is one of my aunts on Laurel's side of the family gave me this book by the Hagans, which introduced me to this whole brass band tradition that had existed before Sousa. So actually, very subversively, the brass band is actually the primary original American sound. So part of the way I've explained to myself and to others the popularity of the, well, the so-called British brass band sound, and I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that description because it's not really a British thing anymore, but it does help to distinguish it, I guess, from like jazz brass bands, you know, so there's no confusion, right? Um, I think it's partly to do with that. I think brass is in the American blood going all the way back to like the Civil War period, you know? It's funny because there's a Charles Ives song where, he's, where the person sings about seeing the cornet walking, you know, the cornet player playing in the town square, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a brass band that Charles Ives is talking about. Uh, it's really great stuff. So that's my short answer. <laughs> there was, I wanted to interject with, with uh, something in there. I remember reading in, there's a textbook uh, where they had the, they had a picture of Lincoln's funeral and their playing at Lincoln's funeral was a brass band. They called it an orchestra because whoever was writing like had no clue what they were looking at, but there at Lincoln's funeral was a, was a brass band. And in every regiment during the civil war, they had a brass band as well. Um, so I've, I've noticed when I read about things from the American Civil War, um, they frequently will just call them bands or, or it, when you see them in a picture, they'll refer to them as, as orchestras. And I think that it's a major oversight from the people who are writing the captions or, or the, the text um, that they don't, they don't know what ensemble they're looking at. And so I've seen them misidentified more than, than correctly identified. I think um, so also maybe the term is coming to mean different things just like now we, we have to call like British brass band so so that you don't imagine like a, a marching band or, or something jazz style uh, I'm starting to wonder now like wh why did the clarinets join the band why couldn't we just stay brass that, like, why why do like middle school programs all start with like flutes Gilmore and Sousa <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> they they took over and uh and became immensely popular around the turn of the century and that's what led us that's what led us towards our wind ensemble path the other interesting thing sam is right around the same time as british soccer which we call football over there right uh was determined how many players were playing a team and where they would play Similarly, because of competitions, it was decided that a brass band would consist of the instrumentation that we currently know it for. You know, one soprano cornet, was it 10 cornets, uh, flugelhorn, tenor horn, sort of baritones, euphonies, trombones. That was kind of standardized. And interestingly enough, when the Salvation Army got into the brass band thing, it, they adopted that standardization. There are a couple of variations where they may not have a repiano cornet or a second trombone. There are li little anomalies here or there, but it's actually remained actually fairly between the so-called brass band movement and the Salvation Army brass band, which was a part of their evangelistic efforts. So it was actually the brass band movement was primarily taken around the world initially by Salvation Army. So for example, in America, the Salvation Army British style brass band has been here a lot longer than the so-called secular brass band movement type bands, you know. And then with things like NABBA, the North American Brass Band Association Championship and other championships that have grown up around the country, that's then created another linchpin for, for the growth of that particular, you know, that particular sound. So- Are there other differences besides instrumentation between like a brass band in your community or a community band? Well, yeah, there's a big difference. There's a big difference between a brass band and any other kind of brass ensemble. And this is often difficult even for brass players to understand if they haven't encountered it before. Right. And it's primarily because everything's pretty much conical except the trombones. So in a brass band, the trombones are effectively the brass section. If you think of it as a brass orchestra, the trombones are kind of like the brass section. You know, as trombones are often used, I'm going to get shot to death by trombonists. They're going to, I'm going to get hate mail. Uh, <laughs> I'm very sensitive and I cry easily, so I hope there's not too much of that. But, but you know, the, the, the trombones are often used to add weight, right? 
So for example, a symphonic brass ensemble with trumpets, French horns, trombones, everything's pretty much cylindrical. It's a very, very different type of animal. Anybody that's worked in both those media will tell you it's almost like going from uh, strings to a wind band. Because although they're brass instruments, the actual sound and the sound concept is very, very different in terms of the way that the sound is shaped. Would you guys agree with that? Amy and Tony, in your experience, I think that's pretty true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. It's kind of a chalk and cheese thing, which blows people away because it's all brass, right? They think, hey, it should sound the same. But it's actually quite different. Yeah, I feel like um, I cheat. Like tubas will play the same instruments in either. So we're like the, the through line a little bit, but or with the trombones as well. Um, but you're right, like a full cornet section is something that wouldn't, wouldn't you wouldn't see anywhere else. Um, I was thinking, you mentioned competition. Yeah. Um, and that also feels really unique because a community band that you might join um, as a hobby would not have a competition schedule. Um, is that really like foundational to what a brass band is or is that just just come, come about? It, it kind of is foundational to what it is because it was there right from the very beginning. So for example, the very first big brass band competition was in 1860. And that was the, the National Brass Band Championships down in uh, in London, which went on for about three or four years. Then there was a big break until it restarted in 1900. A few years before that, there was another one in the north of England called the British Open. And they are still the two big ones in the UK. And what, what happens, Sam? I mean, competitions are kind of, can always be a mixed blessing, right? Because there's pros and cons both ways. But, but given that it's mainly an amateur pursuit, like you said, it's a hobby, the competition has been credited with bringing about an incredible virtuosity and professional level of performance, which unfortunately, because the brass band tends to be somewhat incubated from other media. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because we always talk about classical music, but classical music isn't really homogeneous. People that listen to opera don't necessarily listen to string quartets. People listen to piano music, don't necessarily listen to symphonies. So even within the classical world, there are silos. But oftentimes when people hear a brass band really in its full glory, I mean, Bram Tovey, for example, a really wonderful conductor who sadly passed, passed away recently, he famously said that there's nothing, of all the things he's ever conducted, every single type of combination, of, when a brass band is really on form, and you know what they call a crack ensemble um he said there really is nothing like it you know there's a range of color and expressivity within those combinations of instruments that really is like an orchestra it's it's almost like um stanley kubrick wanting to make movies in black and white because stanley always maintained black and white has far more color in it than color and, and so if you think of the brass band sound being like a black and white, and you think of the orchestra being like a color, a color photograph, in, in the respective worlds, it's actually possible for a brass band to create an enormously wide range of different types of colors that I know from my experience of orchestral friends that I've had who've come in from the outside, much as you, I think, might have done yourself, Sam, right? It's almost like a revelation. It's like a flower suddenly opening up. It's like, wow, there's all this incredible repertoire not only to play where you're playing all the time and the parts are often like playing a concerto part, right? Especially in the upper level test piece levels. It's like almost everybody's playing like a concerto level part, even though it's actually within the ensemble. Um, and as I used to say, actually, when I was at Rutgers, I used to tell students, you know, if you leave Rutgers and fall off the edge of the planet, simply because you simply cannot find ensembles once you've left college, we all can relate to this, which, you, you know, you have this wonderful experience in college with all these amazing sounding ensembles, you leave college, and then unless you get a professional position, you're often dealing with situations that are nowhere near the level that you experienced when you're at college, right? Without being chauvinistic about it, I told my students, you know, actually within the brass band fraternity, it's possible not only to find something equivalent, but actually something that will continually call you higher. If you go up through the ranks of the different sections with the band, you'll constantly be called higher, even if you have a nine to five job doing something else. Yeah, I, I as a working musician and freelancer, I often think about like <clears throat> the level of playing that you know is out there, um, the level of competition and the dedication. 
but without funding really um yeah. for me it makes me a little anxious because i'm like musician should get paid right i'm on that team <laughs> um yeah. uh, so where are all these amazing musicians coming from and and are, is there like a, a diversity in background with a lot of these musicians like what what's mostly the path to joining a competitive band i mean i've done a lot of, lot of talking i'm happy to answer it does anybody else want to chime in i think i think the to, to set up a competitive band i think um requires a few different things I think that the most competitive, the top bands have like a like a picture perfect combination of ingredients. I, I sometimes say that like that first section is like the top section with like with with uh, how do I say it with with a, a normal setup. <laughs> the, the championship section bands have something that provides them with uh, with an extra deep pool of talent like a, a really large population center or being set up through a college you'll see these these things or or having people willing to travel for a very long distance so yeah. i think that and they they tend to um, have figured out how to be at least relatively financially stable as well um, so I think that if you go through the championship section bands, you'll see bands that have some combination of, of those. I think that's, I think that's why the first section is, is frequently so big because, um, that's kind of like the, the, I don't know how to say it. Do you want <laughs> what do you mean by first section? So, so Athena. Athena typically plays well Athena is I think if, if Athena had time to rehearse more than you know one and a half rehearsals we'd uh, we'd definitely be championship section but we have we have a rehearsal or two and then a show Athena the the pieces that we tend to play are our first section pieces championship one below the championship mm -hmm. so we have championship and then first section third first second third um and i think the uk is fourth it may it may well have yeah yeah and the, um and the evolution yeah, is really interesting too sorry amy did you I didn't no but yeah. i was i was just gonna i was just gonna say that that um i think i think some people some people go some people grow up in brass banding. Some people with like backgrounds in like Salvation Army um, might find themselves in, in brass bands. Some people get connected while they're in college. I think a lot of people find brass bands when they're in college. Um, and uh, I think some people just stumble upon them, you know, because it's a they want to they want to keep playing. I mean, what are some other ways that people kind of stumble well, into brass bands? I think one one of the things you have to to understand about brass bands is the difference culturally between a community band and a brass band. Community bands are, well, I, I'll go to, to band on Tuesday nights, but if anything comes up, there's going to be five other tuba players there. I don't have to be there. They won't miss me. And they just play it on their terms. Um, in a brass band, especially a top level brass band, um, the, the players in there are really after the highest level of musicianship and challenge musically that they could possibly get. Um, and it's something that that every person says, well, I, makes an agreement with themselves. Like, well, I want to play with the best players I can find on a regular basis and play the most challenging artistic music that I can find. And and, th and they'll do that through the competitions because that music is is what's feeding the soul of those players. And these bands will also fund themselves by playing pop concerts the rest of the year as well. And they'll put up with those concerts so that they can play those five big gigs with the repertoire that they want and the, and the challenge of doing that. Um, you know, but the, the culture is really about they center their lives around the band rather than the band is something that they decided to do at some point. And that means that they, they look for jobs that are in the area where their band could they could make it make it to band rehearsal twice a week. Um, they're there where they can rehearse, where they can have weekends off so that they can do the competitions. And it's really about you know, that band becomes culturally becomes your second family. And you want to spend time with those people 
as much as anybody else, making music, developing friendships, traveling and all those things. So it's it's a little bit more about of a cult a cultural thing. And in America, we don't really understand this nearly to the to the degree that they do over in in Europe for these types of things. But how close is my assessment on that? Yeah. No, that's great. No, that's great, Tony. And I think just to pick up on the other part of your question, Sam, in terms of a historical perspective, I mean, I was lucky as a kid to play with one of the first college bands, and it was in the United Kingdom. It was then called the Birmingham School of Music, and it was called the Birmingham School of Music Brass Band. That evolved then into the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, which now has its own brass band, right? But it was one of the very first... Um, college bands in the world actually and it wasn't just students it was ex-students as well but in 1979 they came third to Black Dyke and Corey in the national championships from a number one draw now you wouldn't know necessarily that's very very hard to do by any stretch of the imagination let alone as a bunch of students or recent ex-students what did that mark well it really marked a transition that happened in the 60s I think the Beatles and the whole explosion of pop and rock had something to do with this. Also the industries and the collapse of the industries, especially under Margaret Thatcher. Like in 1992, they closed the Grimethorpe Pit, which was one of the legendary bands. And that was symptomatic of a lot of closures. And at the same time, the brass band was increasingly being accepted in the academy. So, for example, down in London, James Watson, who's no longer with us, but was a great member of Philip Jones Brass Ensemble. Some people know his name. Great conductor of the Black Dyke Band. He really promoted the brass band at the Royal Academy of Music. Um, the Royal College of Music now has its own band. So, and over in the United States, it's probably fair to say that most bands, I'm being a bit carefully because it's, I don't want to sort of tar everybody with the same brush, but, but I was told when I came over here, if your band isn't actually attached to a university, you won't survive. Now that wasn't actually true in the case of my band, but I think it is hard to, but increasingly brass bands are being accepted over here. I've been involved in some of those fights personally. And once once everybody gets over the fear, because they can initially be, it, brass bands are so awesome, they can intimidate and scare everybody else, especially if territory is involved, right? Um, but once everybody calms down and realizes, no, they're not a big threat. In fact, everybody wins because the standard of the brass playing goes up in general through the brass band experience that the orchestral brass players get better, the concert band brass players get better, everybody gets better because you have that, that essential ingredient also at work in the academy. It's very positive, you know. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another question I was thinking of is like, I know in some places students and, and kids can grow up through bands, um, but it's my understanding that that's always been like outside of a school system. So they might have like music in school, but the brass band is an extra organization. Is that is that fair to say? I think I think there are there. This is very um, very. I've heard of a few situations where um, people have successfully incorporated brass um, into uh, into their school program, and it gets approved especially in like inner city programs where they don't have a whole lot of money and they don't have, they don't have a whole lot of kids. And so by going with, with brass and, and having kind of like a brass band slash uh, brass choir type setup, um, I've, I've heard of some teachers uh, being able to have um, brass instruments tend to not tend to, you know, survive, more things more easily um by having fewer instruments you're not going to have that bassoon in the closet collecting collecting dust you're going to use more instruments um you're going to have you know enough kids on every instrument so i know at least for for a little bit um somebody who was in philadelphia who who did that kind of system starting everyone on a brass instrument um so that there would be enough kids on each instrument and in doing that but i think I think outside of a few, you know, sporadic examples, I think it is outside of the school. But I, I think I'm seeing youth brass bands uh, getting started up at a at a crazy rate right now. I mean, I think, you know, does everyone else agree? I, I mean, 
it's, it's becoming part of the brass band ecosystem that you want to set up. You want to have, you want to have a, a youth brass band, maybe a lower section brass band and a higher section brass band. And so the kids can get the, the extra music education um, outside of the school setting, get pushed a little bit further and then get bitten by the brass band bug and realize that also whatever ensemble it is, you don't have to pack up your instrument at the end of high school if you're not planning on being a music major. And planning that idea in those kids' brains is really important. So whether it's brass band or wind ensemble or orchestra or whatever, planting the idea that there, there is a place where you can keep playing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think brass bands get enough credit uh, or at least youth bands get enough credit for keeping those musicians playing in college when they don't study music. But a lot of them, at least our experience here is that they, they continue playing in college just because that idea of brass band is something you're gonna be able to play the rest of your life. So keep playing, because eventually you're gonna to get to work your way back into a brass band. So they play in their college band, even though they're studying microbiology or pharmaceuticals or anything like that. And they just keep studying and playing so that someday they'll get back into it. And a lot of high school bands are nowhere near as successful at keeping more musicians studying or playing in college through that. Does yeah. uh, instrument ownership become like a, a barrier, especially for the, um, I'd say more niche instruments, like, like the E flat horn or something? Like do bands usually own those or individuals? Usually the bands. The yeah. my youth brass band uh, owns uh, several cornets, all the tenor horns, and I just purchased the two E flat basses. You don't even <laughs> want to know how you don't even want to know how many instruments we own. Yeah, I bet <laughs> we uh, we own at least twelve or fourteen tenor horns. Yeah, I believe it. I think <sighs> anybody should ever own that many. The, the good thing, the really good thing about uh, being in Columbus and getting tenor horns is that Ohio State used to use uh, tenor horns for marching. So, uh, so you can always, you can always find used older tenor horns for sale. Yeah. They're not, they're not top of the line, but they're, but they're, you know, they're still doing a, a great job, however many years later. So yeah, we just picked up a few of those. I, I've never thought of, you know, of, of an obstacle, the instrument being an obstacle. I mean, there are many obstacles to, to getting into a brass band, but if you want to play, you all you got, you know, you can find an instrument, you know, there's, it's just, you just, you know, somebody's not going to give you one, <laughs> you know, per se, but you can always, you know, go on eBay and buy one, or you can go to a music store and buy one or order one, you know, so if you really want to play in a brass band, the instrument's not going to be the, the obstacle. Well, I mean, in our, in, in my youth brass band, um, it's, it's payment optional. Um, and the kids, the kids will get an instrument. They may not get the exact instrument that they want, you know, cause I don't have any euphoniums. I don't have any baritones and I don't have any trombones. Um, but you know, um, if you want to, if you want to play, I have an instrument for you. And if, and, and as I learned last, last season, if you want to play and you're a woodwind player, um, here's some auxiliary percussion. Welcome to the group. <laughs> or tenor horn. Well, I, I actually or had baritone. quite a few. I don't, well, I don't own any baritones yet for the youth brass band, but you know. Are the, are the plastic ones of any great? No. No. I mean, they're, they're great for the fact that my sons can, throw it against the wall and it still plays yeah i'm gonna um, yeah i'm gonna play the snob card on that one i, I will not i will not stand for this they, have you they, tried the plastic tuba yet they exist i'm that. afraid i'm i i absolutely love the plastic tubas and yeah? if it were five hundred dollars i would own one but i'm not paying three thousand dollars for a plastic tube i'm just not doing oh it. my gosh that's the price for those the the yeah, bar ridiculous the plastic baritone, there's a different kind of plastic baritone, um, and it's $130. So my boys both have, have those and, you know, you can, you can play it and it's great for kind of like playing a little bit and, you know, we'll play taps across America with them and stuff and they can, they can, you know, but as for like, hmm, 
I'd pay $130 for a plastic tuba for sure. Yeah, and that's I like T-bone territory. That's yeah, T-bone. Yeah. 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 I take it on gigs too. I'm just playing whole notes anyways. <laughs> I think I think uh, I think sometimes I think the, if there if there were an obstacle, I think the biggest one is in the in the bass section with finding those E flat bases. Um, because especially in the youth environment, these kids are not going to have an E flat base. <laughs> no. so I'm just thinking we, like I mean, we... growing up learning tuba, no one else around me owned a tuba. Like you graduate high school, you maybe play it in college, and then you're certainly done. Like I know music majors who don't own a tuba <laughs> almost by the time they graduate, and it could be a huge mm -hmm. thing. Of course, there are a lot of tuba options out there, like there's a huge scale of, of prices for tubas, but you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, I know if I wasn't on this career path, I might not own a tuba. Um, that felt like it, it, the the big hurdle. I know for a lot of people, even if they love to play tuba. Yeah, I think um, several bands that I've been in have owned a tuba, you know? So it's like, if you don't have one and you wanna play, you know, we have one for you. Um, you may be on, you may not, you may be on E flat when you prefer to be on B flat or something. And I've seen some people uh, bring their C. I think. I think I saw, I think I saw Jan Duga playing her C at NABA. No, not at NABA. What was it at? Yeah, it was something. I saw, I saw Jan playing her C. <laughs> and I was like, no, we're all cheating that, that last Athena one. I was nervous. I'm like, I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm on my C on this B flat part. I feel like I'm being so naughty, but I can't get my hands on a B flat <laughs> super easy last minute. But right. then I found out we were all on F and C. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've we're actually competed in a band where we had an E flat, an F, a B flat, and a C. <laughs> That's the whole rainbow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually, you know, because with my band, we, we would actually use um, F and C tubas as well. And when I had Philip Harper clinicking the band, I would so tell me what you think about the the sound of the tubas and i could not get him to say anything other than man they sound great you know i was like no but do they sound wrong <laughs> getting away <laughs> with it yeah. yeah he wouldn't he wouldn't bite you know at the end of the day you know i would love to to have this experiment go on is the difference between a section of b flat and e flat and c and f because there's a different level of clarity you can get get out of the out of the section when they're playing on C and F, and there's a, a level of you know just bassiness or, or woofiness or what, whatever that you get from the B flats and the E flats, and, I, and it, it'd be interesting to see if there could be a battle royale where the industry standard changed to the C and F, you know, because maybe the only reason it's not changed is because we've never done it and we can't change. You know. Well, I feel like it's happening, but tuba player by tuba player, stubborn, stubbornly, like I'm not buying a, a third or fourth tuba. Or, I'm not or, learning any new fingerings or, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an American, uniquely American thing. C tubas is very prevalent and it's actually more rare to see a B flat, E flat bass section at NAVA than, than anything else. There are bands that are getting to that, but, um, but it's tough to find that. And it's great going back to the treble clef problem, especially with the B-flat transpositions, right? There's a number of sites now, like on Facebook, there's a, a brass band tuba bass clef site you can go to where you can ask for, for pieces. <laughs> just, yeah, just get the tuba parts in the bass clef. So I don't know whether you knew that already, Sam, but that's a useful piece of information. I am I, uh, not fully inducted into the world, so I'm taking notes. Um, I, I did like panic arrange all the music before. Uh, the, the <laughs> I night. like that term, you panic arranged it. Because I'm like, I could do this. I could do this in my head. And then I'm like, no, it's, it's <laughs> maybe not worth it uh, to do it like that. But but then as soon as I show up, I realize like I, I the transposition clicked if I just pretended the C tuba was an F tuba and that it was bass class and then you change the key signature. Yeah. But I know and there would be moments where like as soon as my part got important, my brain would like <laughs> dissolve. Yeah, that, that always happens. That always happens. Um, but but yeah, that you nail it, the F tuba. But at the end of that, you do a two hour rehearsal thinking like that, you definitely are brain dead and you have to refresh it somehow because 
you know, it's 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 more mentally challenging to play in a brass band for a tuba player than it is physically. Because you're you playing low notes most of the time anyways. That's not really tough on your chops. But boy, your brain thinking, I can't miss that. That natural is a flat. Ugh. Okay, <laughs> you know, I, I think we that. also, in general, we're just like hyperventilating so much. That does something else to my brain too. <laughs> Maybe like not like muscularly, like, yeah, this we're we're fine here. But like, I literally, the oxygen deprivation, yeah. <laughs> I remember doing breathing exercises with my, my undergrad uh, euphonium professor. And at a certain point, we just started laughing because we were so oxygen high. We were just like, we just broke out into laughter and both of us were like, wee! <laughs> Going between that and like not being able to breathe for like however many measures must do fun things to our brain <laughs> uh, thinking about all the key stuff that's going on honestly i think it's a beautiful thing like from from the origins that the idea was people could switch and read different music play on different instruments which a lot with a lot of ease because right now the system we have um trying to explain it to like brass classes um and and the different transpositions with woodwinds even it, it just becomes a little bit like all, all the students are asking is why, 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 why? Um, and at least in brass band, it, just in that bubble, it all can make sense. And it feels like purposeful and matched to the, to the equipment. Um, is it orchestra's fault that all uh, transpositions are so gnarly right now? Well, I, I've actually had this gripe about um, British brass band cornet players or, or actually all brass bands because when they look at, um, the treble class staff, they'll see the third space C and call it a C, not a B flat. When it comes out, a B flat. Yet the part is specifically written B flat treble class. So as a tuba player who doesn't transpose, I'm like, why won't you call it what it is? I don't understand that. And that would alleviate all of this discussion because what essentially they're doing, it's all the trumpet players that play cornet, they're transposing. They're not, they're just calling it different than what it actually is. So it's a, it's a, it's a light version of transposing, but for the life of me, for after a hundred some years of this, Stephen, how come they don't call it B flat a B flat? Because the scientists have proved that the big bang was in B flat. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, that was not what I was expecting to hear. I, 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 I'm, I'm <laughs> I told you joking. so many dances would be silly. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not actually joking, actually, that's serious. The, that, that is serious science. So, so I, I always jokingly said, you see, brass bands were always gods in God's chosen key. It's a <laughs> concert pitch that's wrong. Oh. Call, me a brass band, call me a brass band chauvinist. <laughs> I, I, uh, I really do tend to, I know I, we have these tuba players who, who are transposing and don't like uh, bass clef, but <laughs> don't like treble clef, but I, like I switch back and forth constantly. Like if I'm doing a recital, I'm going to choose whichever clef works best for that piece. If it's a really high piece, it's like, if it's a really high piece and someone, I'm going to ask if they have a treble clef version of it because. Yeah, less ledger line. When we, did our, when we did a critical edition of the seven suite, um, we had what we call world parts. I said to mm -hmm. Mike, can you generate, let's get French horns, let's get all of the baritones down in the bass clef. Let's, so we got everything, you know, because as you guys know, there are sets that they call world sets where mm -hmm. you have all the brass band stuff in the treble clef, but then they also mm -hmm. provide other parts in the bass clef alternatively too, which I think is a great idea. And now we're in our electronic age and we don't have to worry too much about paper. It's even easier to do it, isn't it? With mm -hmm. AI yeah. coming very soon, we're just gonna be able to tell AI you know, write a piece of music. Right. Write, write a piece of music in the style of Benjamin Britten. <laughs> in the style he was writing it in 1970, and arrange it in every clef, and they'll just do it. When I I just you know I want like baby. I want like baby steps. Can we just? Can I just be like? Can you transpose this to bass clef for me? And it just do it because that would be like like that because that would be. But I like I I like having that option of that of that second class because yes. I if it's if it's high if it's technical it's easier to read in treble clef because it because my part 
technical stuff on euphonium tends to go really quite high and I'm reading three plus ledger lines above the staff. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to take it in trouble clef and go yoink down a little bit lower. And yeah, right. that's trombones and tenor clef and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. the same. Clef. It's the same thing. Yeah. Try I, reading a Prokofiev tuba part. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, tuba players can't avoid it because we need to do it in both directions. The right. lower <laughs> ledger lines are uh, unavoidable. That's and then true. the higher ones, I was so mad when I got to college and I'm like, upper letter lines, let's relax. <laughs> it's fine. How many is, oh, that's a B flat. I thought double pipe B flat. Ah, oh, that's a I'm lot of I'm still writing in notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the farther they go in each direction, the more you have to write. <laughs> but it's way off, off the page. I like how, I know class are probably designed for like a range of like a voice, something a little bit manageable, relatable. And then our the technology has it gone too far? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was also thinking. So um, we we have to transpose a little bit differently as tuba players, where we normally are looking at the music, and then we get to choose what instrument we want to match to that. Um, but of course, not everyone does that either. Like the the history of trumpets having different instruments for different parts. So that's more the brass band transposition. Um, but I like the idea that a player playing different instruments would then have less to do in their head. Do people in brass bands today still switch between sections pretty frequently or do people pick a lane and really specialize like, like someone like me would have with tuba? It tends to be more specialized. And, and I think the movement from, as I said before, right? Let's say before the 1960s, where it was very much in communities like mining communities or industrial communities where everything was done orally. You know, you got, if you're a euphonium player, actually, even when I was at college, um, I was taught by a trumpet player that because there weren't euphonium teachers when I was at college, you know, so even, even that has changed. So the idea of specialization is much, much more set now, I think, within the culture is my understanding of it. I think, I think that being said, there have been times that that has saved us. Um, you know, we moved one of my students from Rowan, um, they moved him to Tenorhorn for a bit because we always had like a plethora of, on, of people willing to be on the baritone euphonium row, but Tenorhorns are super hard to find people who play Tenorhorn. And so he played Tenorhorn for a season. Um, and you know, you can just pick up a Tenorhorn and you just, you just play, you know, I mean, it messes with, with my brain because my relative pitch hangs on for just long enough to make me feel like I'm like, you know, like wibbly wobbly, but he could just pick up a tenor horn and that's, and go from, the from that point. And the repertoire's there now for it too. I mean, when I was at college, it was four euphonium pieces, right? It was uh, the Horowitz Concerto, it was the Gordon Jacob Fantasia, Philip Spark Fantasy. I think that was probably about it. But now there are thousands and thousands of euphonium concertos. And I've watched actually the tenor horn go the same route in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. There are now you know, gadzillions of, of, of serious pieces for a tenor horn player. So, and so if you go to study the tenor horn at, say, the Royal Academy of Music or at wherever, Rutgers or Rowan or wherever, um, you can now specialise because the repertoire is actually there, which it wasn't 20, 25 years ago. So that's been a spectacular development too. Even down to now, euphonium players like uh, Dan Thomas of Black Dyke, I think they commissioned Judith Bingham who's a heavyweight classical, uh, you know, to, to write him a euphonium concerto, you know, and euphonium players are now getting access to, you know, as are tuba players and everybody else, increasingly getting access to major composers who are now writing them this amazing repertoire. So mm -hmm. when you pick up a tenor horn, there's no longer just an arrangement of some theme tune, which <laughs> you actually now have original solos, that you, which is baritone as well. Mm -hmm. Baritone has become an instrument completely in its own right that couldn't have been imagined, I think, 20 to 30 years ago. I think some of this, some of this is because the composers, I've talked to a composer who didn't initially write for, for euphonium and, and tuba and well, low brass in general. And I remember him saying that he discovered at some point that since they had less literature going back for quite as long, that, that when he put something out for, for low brass instruments, that we'd, we'd all try it. We're like, hey, what's this? Well, <laughs> you know, we don't have like, since we don't have um, literature that goes out so far, 
every time, you know, there's, there's more uh, of a chance to like find, find new stuff and move things along quickly and, and figure out what's good, what's not good. We'll all try it. <laughs> I saw there's a, a new concerto written for Marching Mellophone. The future is really? now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? I love it. Uh, so I know a lot of instruments in, in the brass band also exist elsewhere. Of course, like the tuba, essentially same instrument. I know E flats and B flats will be like manufactured for its purpose. And um, they might look a little different, but um, also of course, euphonium um, cornet sometimes, but more, more likely it's trumpet other places. Um, why hasn't the tenor horn like migrated to other ensembles? I, I know all the brass instruments were invented around the same time, like the valve was born and ta-da, you have tubas. Um, but some of them in the middle seem to have gotten like a little bit dead-ended at the brass band. That's true. That, that's true, yeah. I mean, here's a real interesting one, Berlioz. Um, Berlioz actually wrote for brass bands. Uh, the Trojans, the opera, you know, the opera, the huge multi-part opera. The Trojans has brass bands in it. He wrote cornet parts straight into Symphony Fantastique as, the, as it was actually being invented, you know. And Berlioz, I mean, it's really interesting because Berlioz's overtures arranged for brass bands sound spectacularly well, you know. But then you think to yourself, well, didn't, didn't Berlioz want to use uh, euphonies, you know, or... Even recently, I think of Tippett, Michael Tippett's fourth symphony was going to have two euphonium parts in it. And he ended up doing it for two tubas, just simply because everybody said it's actually better just to give it to two tubas because that's more, we have the players, they're already being paid. They're already there. We don't have to find a euphonium, you know. Or so two. it's a very, very interesting thing. Yeah. Marla, I love playing Symphony Fantastique, but I always feel it's a little naughty because I know it's not... <laughs> The sound that was original, but it's so fun though. Yeah, 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 yeah. That original sound was on the on the tube was really rough, right? We could offer Clyde as well in there yeah. or some other, yeah. And he really wanted this dry, hard sound, you know, quite different to what modern instruments can produce unless you play them deliberately, very hard. Right. Yeah, I I can't even imagine offer Clyde being audible above a good contrabassoon. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Or good, you know, really good bassoon section because they blend, you know, yes. bassoons can play pretty loud on that Dia Theory. You, you got to yes. have some Frank all and to be heard. Yeah, all four of them. I heard someone argue that the sound should really be like bassoon centric, which is, I mean, it's it's rattling for sure. Um, I'm very biased towards tuba, but yeah. So like the <laughs> the technology in the tuba, I feel like is still um like even what people want to hear from a tuba has developed so far and like has changed a lot. But the tenor horn is almost like um, a piece of history in that the design hasn't changed very much, right? Since the brass band became popular. Well, yeah, I, that, I, go ahead, Steve. Oh, okay. No, I was going to say um, briefly, um, yes, you're right. And I, I would suspect that if you talk to a lot of tenor horn players, and I'm not one, so I can't really speak for them, but this is an assumption. I think it's a, a reasonable one. Most of them would say we don't necessarily want to migrate into those other ensembles simply because we have a home base now that is rich in its own terms. So in other words, a, a, a tenor horn player is much more likely to play a concerto or a solo in a brass band scenario than they would ever have if it migrated, say, into an orchestral or a similar type of scenario somewhere else. So I think it's a question to some extent of having your needs met, you know, in a, in a certain way, which is not to say it wouldn't be wonderful to have a the tenor horn be in those other types of ensemble, but to some extent, I can't help but thinking it'd be redundant at this stage, that the orchestral palette is probably pretty settled for the most part. Could be wrong. It's, it's settled. Uh, was it? it settled. Yeah. It failed. It's standardized. <laughs> no. it's, it uh, is. I mean, it, you know, like as popular as saxophones are as an instrument, it's still not really going to make its way into an, a, a standard orchestra setup. Not so. regularly, no. no. Not regularly, that's right. Yeah, you're just happy if there's a tuba seat still there in, in an orchestra. <laughs> It'd be nice if there were two. That would be helpful. I know we need more friends out here. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think part of part of the part of the um, 
I mean, to totally flip that on, on its head, instead of focusing so much on, on orchestra, I think that we need to support all ensembles yes. more. Um, because I feel like so much support goes directly to orchestras and they should get support. But, but I, I think in the UK, they have um, their, their equivalent of, of um, National Endowment for the Arts that we, would, that we have. Hat and supports um, community bands, supports brass bands. Like I, I've never heard of a brass band getting like National Endowment for the Arts type funding. I think in England they have secured some lottery funds. I think I remember Black Dyke getting quite a big chunk from the National Lottery. Yeah. But like we don't, you know, how it's cool is that local. Be? It's mostly yeah. local for uh for grants and and funding like that the local communities support the local bands rather than the national the, the national arts budget isn't nearly large enough right um to to trickle down that far you know yeah. into the brass band world but but you know if you have some good good grant writers or connections the brass band can get some good local funding that could be helpful but I think that it's a it's a cultural um, it's a cultural remnant that the orchestra is is somehow more sophisticated. Yeah, it is. Um, than than other ensembles, um, and so I you know I it's wishful thinking, but I think that it would be great if if all ensembles were were supported in you know. I don't know. I'm putting ideas out there and I can't finish them, but you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm no, thinking like strings have like chamber orchestras where they're all, it's like string family time and there's brass band, brass family time. What about flutes and clarinets? Do they have their own little niche or do they have to jump in on other bands and other orchestras? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, they don't seem to have that culture of like, I mean, there are tons of octets and, and stuff for winds. Um, but they don't really have that like that's another field that's really grown in the last 20 to 30 years is the chamber music for brass band ensembles and the tenor horn does feature very well actually in a lot of those types of ensembles but no it's a really interesting thing sam i mean there's also a flip side to it in that you have a phenomenon that a lot of uh, students that go to college mainly in the uk at this stage um deliberately do not pursue an orchestral career because they actually want to play in brass bands. Now, they know they can't make money doing it, but they would rather not make money doing it in a brass band than making money doing it in an orchestra, simply because of the interest in the music. And so they'll often take on teaching as a deliberate career strategy, simply to give themselves the freedom to be able to, to do the brass band rather than a professional career <laughs> in orchestra which I know does a lot of people's heads in. It's like, well, that just seems like a totally inverted logic to the conservatoire, like, uh, you know. As yes. as Why, how, yeah, how could you possibly want to play this stuff for free when you could get paid to do it? You know, <laughs> which, you know, uh, and, which and is- think, And I think the problem is you're not paid to do it. You're, pay, you, you, you're right. not paid, you're not play, paid to play the tuba part in Journey into Freedom or the tuba part in Blitz or the tuba part. You're, you're, you're paid to, to play pieces where you have to spend 150 bars counting rests right. with a low note. Yeah, you know? well, I, I also think it's, think it's an interesting thing to think about when if you were, you know, a trumpet player that's trying to make it, you know, as a freelance trumpet player, you have to play this church gig with this you know, really, really awful choir, choir and choir director. You have to teach these students. You have to do these clinics. You have to go to this school. And you're doing it for peanuts, really. When, you know, and then when do you ever get to play really good, sophisticated music with really top-notch players? Every once in a while, the symphony is going to call you and you get to sit in for that. Um, but if you play in a top-level brass band and you, you know, or a bank or a real estate agent or something, you know that every time you get to play your horn, you're playing it with the best of the best. And yeah. you're getting to play high quality literature. So it's really about the choices about, well, I only have this much amount of time that I'm willing to devote to my music, but I want it to be super high level. You yeah. Know? So you can really, you know, work your life around getting to get exactly what you want. And then you can make enough money to support that habit and to feed a family when, you know, humping it day to day as a freelance musician could be a, a big struggle. Well, that's, I, I know, I know people who um, specifically search out for, uh, for those elementary general music jobs. 
so that that they can do their freelance stuff they can do their brass band stuff they can pursue their their playing career but have that paycheck because they're they're going to have what like fall they'll have the fall concert the spring concert uh you know and and maybe help out a little bit with the like a middle school musical or something but they're not going to have the out of school commitment that a middle school or high school band director is going to have. They're not going to have jazz band meeting and marching band and pet band and everything. So bless everyone who does that hard work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. A lot of hard work. So, so I I was up to a long time ago. (laughs) I, I know quite a few people who, who will find, who are, who are super accomplished musicians who find those, those, uh, elementary general music jobs so that, the end of the day they can go out and they can go to their to their gig or their brass band rehearsal or competition a lot of the a lot of the people in the top brass bands in the UK um are are you know selling insurance real estate agent <laughs> cuz they're they're on the road so much that you know they're doing what whatever whatever gig they can find that can enable their brass banding <laughs> that's right it's right Enable is a fun word for it. Enable, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's enable is for sure the right word. We're all enabling each other. I well, you you mentioning um like a job in an orchestra for a tuba player is not the most exciting, but I feel so blessed every time I get paid to listen to everyone else make great music for a moment. Of course. Like, what a, what a privilege! I just played a piece and I was like, I know. Okay, that's a secret. I don't want to like. Yeah, secrets out. Um, but yeah, man, being tacit so fun so fun um but (laughs) but it is it is a different balance of like yeah I'm always considering the dollar per time dollar per effort like yeah it's it's a very uh unique decision point to be in personally um and I know some bands do have funding what does it go to like what are the expenses that bands are dealing with outside of and then I have like maybe one more question we can wrap it up I'm just kind of curious because I know they do need funding to survive right yeah, well, the, the biggest expenses are usually um, rehearsal locations and performance venue fees, um, staffing, like artistic director or librarians, things like that. Um, you know, some bands um, will use some of their funding to actually pay the, for the band's hotel or travel costs to get to the competition. You know, it's all, it's all, it's all the things like that. Um, you know, no band is getting rich. Building a library. Building a library, buying music. I had a band where I built a library. It was about $73,000 when we cut, totaled up uh, at the end there what, what, what it was worth, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, that's a, that's a fair amount of money, you know. How many charts were in that? Oh, that's a good Were you question. over 1,000? You know what? Probably 2,000. I, I cannot honestly give you that number. I don't know. Yeah. It they they add up after a while. As many years of ordering them, picking them up, getting catalogued, all that jazz, you know. That could be mm-hmm. a, that could be a big expense. In the top bands, they do actually have retainers for some players. You're never going to get rich, but if you know, if you get say twelve thousand pounds a year or six thousand pounds a year, that can certainly yeah. happen, right. You know, gas gas money for a lot of players. Gas money, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly right. Yeah, because you're right, Tony. A lot of them travel many many miles. I mean, yeah. for rehearsals. Yeah, I know some players in the Corey band that are traveling three three hours each way, twice a week, yeah. just to play in the band, including their music director. I think he has a two hour, two and a half hour commute. But my 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 job with Lancaster was that. That's why I had to give up Lancaster. Actually, it's simply because of the commute, because it was a four hour round trip. Yeah, often late at night, you know. Yeah. It's a, a high, high level of dedication, but I'm sure that you can hear it. You, it you hear the dedication in the music too. Yeah. You, you really can. You absolutely can. Yeah. Uh, here's my last uh, round question. What's your favorite thing about brass band and why should I find one to join permanently? All right, Steven, you're going to have to go first on this one. Well, it's a, it's a split between the social, um, which can be very rewarding of great friendships and um, the musical. The fact that you can accomplish, I mean, we just finished a project on a Vaughan Williams piece, which has been a dream of mine for a long, long time. Took two and a half years to do it, mainly because of the technology.
but I sit back and I think to myself, that's something that I'm really proud I've done. And I don't think I could have done it if it was necessarily with an orchestra, not knocking orchestras, but it's just that the standard of the playing and the standard of everything is, is just so amazing that you can actually get that, you know? And I think that a lot of people that get a high off of there, I mean, I, I, have, I have a very good friend uh, who's not in the best of health at the moment, unfortunately, but he told me one of the highlights of his life was playing Resurgum by Eric Ball. And this guy traveled the world as a theater, playing with uh, theater orchestras, pit bands, jazz ensembles, top notch. And yet he said one of the highlights of his entire life was playing with Zergum with the brass band. And thought, wow, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. Great music and great friendships. Relationship. Yeah, I, I, I would say mine is, um, you know, because I agree with everything that Stephen said too. And those are, you know, definitely at the top of the list. Um, but I would say uh, the sound, the sonority yeah. that Nebraska makes. You know, if you're if you're a real true brass player, then you you just love being involved in the, in loud sound, and and nothing gets louder than a brass band, you know, in an acoustic setting, you know. So playing music that that develops that sonority and those colors and textures with that that sound as an orchestral brass player, it's just better because it's double the size, so it just gets double the loud. Um, so that's that's my my meathead brass player answer for that. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know what to say. I I think there are lots of things that I like about brass band. I um I feel like I I feel like I jumped in the deep end with my experience in brass banding and not really getting into brass band until I moved to the UK. Um and so um I was kind of, you know, surrounded by it very quickly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I think, I think that that sound is kind of addictive. <laughs> that rush of those moments, we can, we can create huge, um, we can, like, I have, I have words for them. I have like, like the moments that are like the open the door moments close the door moments where it's like the volume just like instantly doubles instantly. Like we can do things with dynamics that um, instruments with other ensembles might have trouble with. And those, those moments are so much fun to either be part of or be in, in the hall for. I also think that as a, as a low brass player, the brass band is where I am challenged more than anywhere else. I mean, Obviously, I don't have a whole lot of experience in orchestra, but the but the experience I have is in counting rests for a very long time and then playing like five notes. And wind ensemble is a little bit better. Um, you occasionally get some cool stuff in wind ensemble, um, but when when you're sitting on the corner chair in a brass band, like <laughs> it's full on. It is full on, and you don't really get much of a break. Um, and and as as Steve said earlier on, that at a competition you're playing stuff that is it is essentially like playing your your part as a concerto. <laughs> and so I love how it keeps challenging me. Um, and and I joke that playing in a playing in a brass band keeps me in shape for my for my paid gigs <laughs> because yeah. like, because if I you know I get. I tend to not get a whole lot of gigs. I tend to get like big gigs and then wait, 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 and then get another big gig. Um, and so if I if I didn't have anything, um, then it would be several months and then playing of of nothing and then playing a concerto up in front of a big ensemble, which I'm I'm very fortunate to get to do sometimes. Um, but the brass band is what keeps me going. Um, yeah. It sounds like Sam like got our question of the uh, episode question, you know, right yeah. there. We don't we don't have to have Aaron come up with one at the last second. Yeah, I don't know if we yeah. could actually hear Aaron. Uh, if you haven't noticed, Aaron is not on this recording. He is strep, and he he said, "Well, I can be there, um, but I'm not saying anything." <laughs> Which is, of course, there's no point in having him here if he's not going to say something. Because <laughs> he will do an say interpretive something. dance in the background. <laughs> I'd rather hear him say something <laughs> silly because he will. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sam and Steve. Uh, it was wonderful to uh, to get to see you, Steve, again. Um, and Sam, um, it was nice to have you on. 
And nice to see you again. We saw each other in Louisville. So it's been not Louisville. Was that Louisville? Yes. Yes. We were in Kentucky. <laughs> we were, out we there. were somewhere in Kentucky. <laughs> so it was nice to see you again. Um, yeah. Thank I you think all. I learned so much from y'all. Yeah. I'm really? glad. Yeah, this was fun. This was very fun. We'll have to do a part two sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It's great.